Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. You're on Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Dr Beach. We, of course, are on Triple R and we just, um, I just think we have to start with acknowledging the greatness and wonder of young Tim, Tim uh, Thorpe. Tim Thorpe, thank you very much, Tim. We, it's, it's, it's like working with a living legend. <laughs> it's like working with a living legend. It's, it's everything seamless, everything simple, everything's beautiful. It's beautiful handball for a nine aims time. Oh, and you yeah, know, for Radio Marinara. Within the second, you mm-hmm. know, it's just remarkable. Anyway, uh, yes, you are indeed on Radio Marinara. We've, um, we've got a, uh, We've got we've got a busy show we do. As, as usual. Yeah, it's not going to be too busy. We're not going to be frantic. We're going to go through a few things. It's you know you don't, you don't have to be worried about the pace. Um, this morning you can just kick back, stay under your doona, I love order a second coffee. Busy but not frantic. Busy but not yeah. frantic. And kind of comfortably we, busy. We will lead you through some things <laughs> in the marine environment. Starting with um, Rex is coming in, Rex Hunter. He's out there apparently at the minute digging a, a hole, I think, to reach a wreck mm-hmm. and he'll, um, he'll be floating past at some point. He's going to talk about the pilots. The pilots, those, those people. Not in that, planes. Not in planes but on the sea. The pilots who um, go out from Queenscliff, I believe, yep. um, out through the heads. They will then bang up against the side of a ship, and then, I know it's all very close. That's all sort of James Bond a bit, really. They get up there, and then they um, guide them in through the heads and up I the guts of the bay. I can't wait to hear about this because this is a very old. This is as old as ships coming in the heads, the yeah. pilot service, and they used to do it in rowboats. Okay. Okay. Anyway, we'll we'll talk to Rex about this. Rex has all kinds of wonderful insights there, and then I don't know whether you've noticed, but um, hey, the weather's been a bit wacky lately. <laughs> the weather has been a little bit wacky. Yeah, apparently yeah. it's that um, La Nina thing. Anyway, we thought it'd be wonderful to kind of dip back into, as over the years, all of our long-term listeners will know, we've had a bit of a thing about the ocean on this show, and um, it turns out the oceans are the drivers of our climate and our weather. So Dr Kim Reid from the Centre for of Excellence for Climate Extremes, there's a lot of words in that, um, from Monash Uni, is joining us. Um, we're going to explore the oceanic drivers of our weather. So is she going to remind me, because I need constantly reminding you do, of you the do. difference between think. the little boy oh. and the little girl. And, ah, you know, yeah, La Nina, we're going to do all Yeah, but what about Sam? It's not just La Nina and El Nino, it's Sam and it's Southern, odd. southern it's, something, is it? Is oh, just wait. You're going to love it. Yeah, okay. We're surrounded by oceans and all three of them drive our weather. And our climate. Anyway, we'll give, Kim will be in later and we'll chat about that. Um, last, kelp. Kelp, kelp, kelp. Last segment we have um, Dr Paul Carnell has kindly agreed to join us on the blur um, from Deakin University. Well, I don't think he'll be on at Deakin University this morning. Maybe he will be. Um, anyway, you know, he's, he's committed gonna, academics. In, he might be. Very committed academic. One of the, um, yeah, many committed academics. At, uh, many wonderful institutions. Anyway, Paul is going to lead us through the urchin problem, Anthony. Yeah. Long-spined sea urchins native to New South Wales yeah. spreading to Victoria and Tasmania probably because of the changing climate. Oh, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly I because of the changing even. climate. Um, and they are munching their way through a lot of kelps. 
um, not really good. What are we going to do about it? Can we harvest sea urchin? Yeah. Um, Paul's going to lead us through that. Very interesting stuff, actually. There's a whole lot of really interesting work being done in a few places about this. I've, and and let, I'll ask him, but I have always thought everyone who's seen Nemo understands about the East Australian Current because mm. that's what the turtles were on. You know, doing their California surfer dude accent thing, which is just not what the turtles in the East Australian Current sound like at all. If you've ever spoken to them, they don't sound like that at all, kids. But anyway, the um, you know, it's pushing all the way down, halfway down Tassie now. You know, this is not normal. So anyway, we'll, we'll have a chat to Paul. I'm going to ask him that. If you're listening, Paul, heads up. I'm sorry, not the bit sorry. about the California accented turtles, the bit about the East Australian Current coming all the way down. Yes. Going too far. Anyway, so if you're interested in kelps, interested in sea urchins, interested in climate change, um, stay tuned. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Oh, no, and, and, and I'd like to have um, two minutes of your ears uh, yes. to tell you. It's very tell exciting. And, and big shout-out to um, our very own Wes Webster for handballing, handballing me, this, alerting me to this article which was in the conversation uh, by a group of um, researchers at the University of Adelaide. And what they, they're interested in, oyster spat. So oyster yeah. larvae falling out on reefs, yeah. they're building artificial reefs. You've probably heard people are getting back into making oyster reefs, yes. um, rejuvenating the many oyster beds that we used to have. Oysters are wonderful. They clean up the water. We can eat them. Food for all sorts of different things. Generally a good thing to have as many oysters as possible. And don't forget that depending where you put them, it can actually, they can be protective assets for coastal defence as well. All so sorts of go. stuff. Yes, and, anyway, and, yes, and, yeah. and where to put them. So like you might want to put, you know, put some rocks down, have the oysters settle there. But the oysters, they prefer a healthy reef. Okay. Something where there's a few oysters already. Of course. So there's other stuff. Yes. Um, how do they detect that? They don't that? want to be the first on how do you reckon, concrete. How do you reckon a little oyster larva well, swimming around would detect whether it's a healthy reef okay, or not? Okay, so the, the, is this a Dorothy Dixon? Because you know it's what a Dorothy. my PhD was on. So anyway, <laughs> you just uh, let's the sound, the They use sound. They do. They have statisists around the larvae. They have their tiny little hairs and they have these little sensor things and they detect sound. That what is these so people cool. at the University of Adelaide did was that they recorded sound from healthy reefs. Port and Lunga off Adelaide recorded the sound there. All little shrimps and fish and things going snap, 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 snap. You can hear all of that. Um, on a barren reef where it's not much fun for oysters to settle, yeah. it's completely quiet. Love this. So they did control experiments, played a recording of Port Nalunga, the sounds that you hear on a healthy <sighs> reef, heaps more larvae no! settled out. And then over years, no! these oysters were bigger. It's just That is very neat. What very we don't understand about the ocean. Really, really beautiful stuff. And wow. that was um, So if you go to the conversation, um, and that this article was cool. published on October the 27th, um, and if you just, I reckon, if you just put in playing sea soundscapes or oysters, baby oysters, that'd pull it up and you could read that beautiful article. And then that takes you to the um, publication which first proclaimed those interesting data um, and that was um, in the Journal of Applied Ecology. I, I, that is sensational. From Dominic McAfee and that a few other people and Sean Connell at the University of Adelaide. Love that wow. kind of work. It's just so yeah, yeah, yeah. evocative of the things that And completely out of the box, you know, you kind of go, oh, of course. You know, we know that, for example, they do use these little things to, to, to pick up chemical signatures. We know that they're able to move up and down in the water column and, and navigate. But to, that's just sensational. Hey. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
This is Tony Barber. Do you like fish? Or maybe marine invertebrates? Listen to Radio Marinara for all things wet and salty. Sundays at 9am on 102.7 3 Triple R. Indeed, you are on 102.73 Triple R. Thank you very much, Tony, for popping hey, in. Yeah, remember Tony Barber. Yeah, it's lovely he just popped in to do that. Um, <laughs> hey, Rex Hunter, he was whistling welcome. too. Was he, was, he was, he was, he was. <laughs> welcome. Welcome, yes. Welcome. Nice it's to be back. To yes. And you've taken your, your diving bell cap off. And well, just the for the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the, giving me a hand. Yeah. yeah the hardest part things. was getting out the car. <laughs> A lot of lot of seawater dripping on the floor. Oh, it's, it's a bloody mess, Rex. <laughs> Get the mop. Now, you've been having a think and a look at the pilot service. Yes, yes, very important service. It's been operating since the uh, sort of mid-1830s. 1830s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so literally since there's been traffic coming through the heads, there's been a pilot service. There's been some sort of service. So, so hang, hang, hang on, boy. So, so you're not talking about pilots up in the air? Well, they could be up in the air on the bridge. Well, I suppose when they go through, <laughs> yeah. through the waves. <laughs> through, the, through the rip, yeah. No, they're yeah, not no, well, pilots. pilots. Yeah, well, that's a... Sea pilots. Sea pilots. So that's just sort of a original purpose of a pilot was to guide ships in and out of ports, unknown ports. Usually, you know, well, that, foreign ships mostly, yeah. That is worth remembering. I'm sorry to interrupt, but, yeah, that was the original use of the word pilot. Well... Before we had planes. There you go. There you go. Bit of etymology there. For so, so is that, and, and you know, then why they, I, I, yeah, because then there were airships, and I bet they just went, oh, we we'll use that word pilot. Seems to be the right word. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Okay. So, <laughs> the non-airplane pilots. It's, it's okay. He's catching up. We'll let Doctor Beach catch up, Rex, and we'll just keep chatting. And when <laughs> the, um, the, so the pilots, eighteen thirties. Yeah. So I, clearly they didn't have zodiacs. Then. No. Well, well, the original uh, pilots operated out of Queensland or Shortlands Bluff. Hang on. So I'm going to interrupt again. Eighteen thirties in Melbourne. Yeah. But not eighteen thirties globally. So there might have been pilots before there was. Oh, been God. Pilot. oh yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, because in the English Channel there was um, pilot, pilots all the time. They even like Columbus and all those those sailors. They they use pilots whenever they. Yeah, um, right. Or even sorry, August. Let's go back to the Greeks. The okay. Greeks had pilots and sailing directions. So back, you know, BC, ancient Greek times, ancient Greek times. Okay, so then we get them in the eighteen thirties. We, we get them in the eighteen because Melbourne was settled about eighteen thirty-five. Yeah. Settlement, uh, colonial settle, settle. and um, to come in, get in and out of Port Phillips heads. As you guys know, who have dived around there, there's three three tides basically. Yes. So you've got flood tide where the water comes in. You've got ebb tide where the water's going out, and you've got slack water in between tides where nothing happens. Where no, nothing happens. Yep. And if um, the most dangerous thing getting in and out was getting through the heads because. I've been there at times where there's been a roaring southeasterly coming in, sea breeze blowing about tw- over 20 knots and there's white caps and it's really, really sloppy outside the heads. Inside, Directly inside the heads is a northerly blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a demarcation zone right across the heads. Yep, yep. So if you imagine you're a ship in the 1830s, late 1830s, like William Salthouse or something like that, sailing with a, a cut, you've come from Canada, yeah. British North America, and you've got this roaring... Um, yeah, southeastly behind yeah. you, you think, oh yeah, oh, yeah I'll, I'll get go through. all the way through. I won't bother about a pilot. That's just a waste of waste of good money. And then you get to the heads, uh, the, the line of demarcation, and there's a northerly wind blowing, and the what, show's over. What do you mean by line of de- demarcation here? Just between the two the two winds, right? Okay. And, 
Have, have you have you seen it? I have. When seen you can it. see yes. that, you can yep. actually see yeah. the line, literally a line across the heads. And I, 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 I'm going to, I'll, I'll say this out loud, and then you tell me how true it is, Rex. <laughs> I've imagined <laughs> whether it's true or not. When there's been a really strong wind, it's almost as if the water is a bit higher on the one side of that wind than the other. Well, good, good, uh, good uh, idea, and it's true, absolutely true. Cause, oh, phew. Because the, the heads are so narrow, there's only a couple of kilometres at the most. Yeah. All, like, all the Bass Strait trying to come in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the water inside Port, Port Thorpe Head can be up to a metre lower than the water in Bass Strait. And vice a metre? Oh, wow, I haven't seen that, but that's, that's impressive. So and vice versa, when the water's trying to get out, you've got the water inside the heads in Port Phillip a metre above Bass Strait. And that's where you've got currents of like six, six knots at yeah, least. Yeah. Through in the middle. Six knot currents. So and these... you cannot swim against a six knot oh, current. Oh, gosh. You probably can't row against one. You can't even swim against virtually a one knot right. current. Yeah. So, so these pilots, these um, non-aeroplane pilots, <laughs> they would launch from um, Queenscliff into this maelstrom. Yeah. Clearly, in those days, without an engine, yeah, right? you know, I mean, now it looks hairy enough. But in those days, what were they doing? Rowing or they'd row and sail, and oh, they geez. would have to. They didn't. There wasn't no. Um, there was no uh, telephone back in those days yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or emails. So they, they would go outside the head. They'd probably have a spotter on Port Lonsdale or somewhere and see a ship. You know, a couple of miles offshore, nautical miles offshore. There'd they, be a ship. There'd be a ship yeah. there, Jim Lad, yeah. and they'd have to get in there and row, row either row the pilot boat. Uh, the whale boat or sail the pilot, the whale boat out through the heads. So those little whaler boats. Yeah, yeah, like 20, yeah, 20, 26 feet or something like that. Through that, through the heads. Yeah. And again, if if you've ever been wind against tide, it, with, <sighs> with a, you could say you've got a three metre swell. Yeah. You've got a um, ebb tide and a southerly wind. You've got that pushing against the, the ebb tide. You have vertical wall, walls of water yeah. over three metres high. and it's pretty scary. I've been out there and oh, yeah. been swamped in a boat. I haven't sunk, but waves I've been have... out there in slack water. It's been like a bloody washing machine. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's slack underneath, but it's like a washing yeah, machine. Yeah, well, it's, it's all these huge whirlpools. And, yeah, 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 yeah. You wouldn't want to. So, so I just got to get this straight. So, were they, were they criminals who had to do this, or were they mad, or like, why would you? Oh, money. Right. For okay. Money. So you got paid. <laughs> okay. So, so you get on a boat, a spot, and the boat yeah, would pay yeah. you spot payment for. Uh, Skippering, surviving, yeah, surviving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring the, the vessel in through uh, Port Phillip Heads and up up to Melbourne, usually yeah. for to the. Anchor. Oh, so they'd stay on all the way to Melbourne. Yeah, well, because once you got through the heads, the show wasn't over. Because <laughs> you, you either had the West Channel or Simmons or Lolanda yeah. or or the South Channel, depending on the depth of water you drew. Right. If you only drew, you know, say less than, less than three meters, you could use the West Channel. Yeah. And you know. People know how narrow the West Channel is. If you're trying to sail a, a square rig, it's vessel, narrow. For those that don't know, it's very narrow. Very narrow. If you're trying to sail a square rig vessel up the um, up the west side up of the, the bay. West Channel, yep. past St Leonard's and all that, and you know you've got a, a northerly wind. Say it, yeah. it's really. Is that why there are so many wrecks along there? That's exactly why. Ah. On either on either bank, there's yeah. There's about oh, I think there's at least five, right. four or five wrecks along there. Good dives. Sorry, Doctor Beach. I kept jumping in. And, and, and you've missed a spot. <laughs> so when the, when the, when the, when the, the whale, a whaler goes out, 
the ship's waiting to come in through the head. Yeah, good yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be – I mean, you've then got to get the pilot yes. from the yes. whaler boat up onto the ship and that can be in pretty hairy conditions. Yeah. Well, they back, they back the sails so they put puts one square set one way and one the other oh, and right. stop the vessel. So it's like, like you're in neutral, yeah, yeah, sailing ship the, neutral. Put the sailing – because oh, there's yeah. no engine, so they put the sailing yeah. ship in neutral. Yep. And the whale boat, they have to row up <laughs> beside, you know, if, if again, you've got three-metre seas yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're yeah, a tiny yeah. little whale boat, the pilot – there's a, a little rope ladder goes over the side, and the pilot boat has to grab that. The pilot has to grab that ladder and sort of shimmy up. And oh then my god! In between give, breaks. And then once the pilot was on the vessel, yeah, he yeah. was in charge. The captain, he could. The captain had no. Like say. legally, the captain yeah. had no say. So yeah. the pilot, and, and, and still the case. These it's still, days. Yeah, <laughs> and, and this is all still happening. So yeah. present day. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rex, but they are orange or are they red speedboats. Orange, can, yeah. Well, they went through a series of different vessels and they had their first offshore vessel called the Ranger in 1841 and eventually got to steam in uh, 1901 with oh, a, a steamer okay. called the Victoria. So they were still using sailing vessels as op- vessels operating off port for heads in the, uh, in the um, grounds, in the pilot boarding grounds, which is about three to five nautical miles Southwest of uh, Port Phillip Heads. So, what's that? The pilot boarding ground. So, does that, is it like where the pilot boats dock and where they, where they hang That's out where, while they're not working? Well, the ship coming in has to give twenty four hours notice, right? And then radio um, hmm. line style saying we're we're going to arrive at you know thirteen forty whatever that is. Yep. And do you ever get like? Has there ever been you know the odd captain that goes, "Oh, I've done this. I'll be right. I don't need money." Well, well there was yeah. Oh, wing back it. in about oh the late. The early 1980s or late yeah. 1970s. I knew we'd have a story. Yeah, I knew we'd too. I thought it was a pilot that may have had one yeah. or two too many before he decided to steer the ship in. Never. And he went straight under Queenscliff <gasps> Light. Oh. This big, big, bulk, a tiny big, right. big bulk carrier, like yeah. you know, a couple of thousand tons, like, I don't know, 10, 15, 20,000 tons. He drove it straight up on the beach. And the, the pilot did that? The pilot did that. Wow. Yeah, I so guess I, that pilot wasn't working for the pilots the next day. Yeah, well, he apparently he's having trouble seeing or something. He has a few uh, problems. Yeah, right. So, and the ships, obviously, Port Phillip Heads, originally there was there was probably um, a vessel called the Lightning, which drew about 20-odd feet, actually hit a pinnacle on the way out, heading back to England in 1863. Yeah. And from then on, the Ports and Harbours Department had to blast Port Phillip Heads. So ever since... The 1860s, 50s, 60s, they've been blasting the head. And yeah. they stopped in the 1980s when they stopped, stopped having a regular dive team blast the heads to get a depth. And we all know there's a big dredging program yeah. a few years ago. So now there's maximum clearance of about 14 metres. So if your vessel draws 14 metres, there's still a couple of metres underneath. And the biggest vessel to come into Port Phillip was a 90,000 tonne uh, cargo carrier. Um, yeah. Container carrier, which and uh, it was over 320 metres long. Wow, imagine getting that through. When was that? Uh, 2018. Okay. Wow. So, oh, Rex, we could keep talking about so that. So, anything that stops, can, stops, you know, 200,000 tonne vessels coming through the heads in yeah. the depth of water. Wow, there you go. Because they're going to be drawn. Hey, fantastic. Awesome having you in here, Rex. I love it. Uh, every time I learn so much. Thank you very much. That is the pilots. Okay. I'll, can you just bolt my yeah, yeah, yeah. The helmet uh, back off for me for the drive home? <laughs> <laughs> you can help him get his helmet on. I'll do that. You're on Radio Man. No, we're going to play um, 
couple of messages, then a bit of music, and then we're going to be back with the ocean drivers of weather and climate with Dr. Kim Reid from Monash Uni. Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I'm going to ask the question, what's going on with the weather and the climate? Because that's the thing that we're all kind of looking at at the minute, going, what the heck is going on? Now, as long-time listeners to Marinara, you will know that oceans have a huge impact on both our weather and climate. And we're just getting clearer, I reckon, lately with all these floods on how much they do. So today, what we thought we'd do is go back to basics and understand the oceanic drivers of our weather and climate with Dr Kim Reid, who's a researcher from the Centre of Excellence in Climate Extremes at Monash University. Good morning, Kim, and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. Thanks for coming in. It's great to see people in 3D. Now, first of all, let's... You know, for those that don't know, quick, you know, 101, difference between weather and climate. Yeah, so a great analogy from one of my colleagues at the Bureau of Meteorology said that climate is your cupboard. So it's the sort of clothes you would have if you were living in Melbourne and weather is what you would pick out on any given day. So a climate is the average of what you'd expect, but the weather is what's happening on a daily or weekly timescale. I love that analogy. That's fantastic. I remember. I'm going to... So, that. so climate is just a series of black clothing yeah. <laughs> and, and weather is the black particular black T-shirt you put yeah, on that day if you live in Melbourne. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, brilliant. Thank you. Okay, cool. Um, now, we've got three really big oceans that surround us <laughs> and we kind of um, – and, and pretty much each of them impacts our, our climate in different ways and our weather, but let's just talk about climate. Well, let's work through them. The Indian Ocean, what does that do to our kind of – our climate. Yeah, so in the Indian Ocean, we have this thing called the Indian Ocean Dipole. Does that get a, a nifty acronym? It, IOD. It's, okay, it's not, not as, as cool as, as yeah, yeah, El Nino, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's basically to do with the difference in the ocean sea surface temperatures near Australia versus near Africa. And the sort of, in weather and climate, the gradient or the difference between temperatures is what's really important sometimes less so than the actual magnitude or yeah, yeah. actual value of the temperature. So, so so it's not dissimilar to the one in the Pacific Ocean. Correct. In that there's a difference in temperature but across the entire ocean. Yeah, it's the same thing but in the Indian Ocean, more or less. Can I, I'm just going to get my head around this. The sea surface temperature off the coast of Africa affects our climate and our weather. Absolutely. It helps set up these big circulations in the wind and that in turn can force weather onto Australia or force it away from Australia and that'll affect our summertime rainfall. Wow. But not only Africa. Isn't it the sea surface temperature of South America? Oh, we haven't come to that yet. We'll get to the Pacific. No, no, no. It's good because this is exactly the point that all these oceans impact us. But so... Do you have what's do you have like is there a thing like a positive dipole or a negative dipole? Is that what it's called? Yeah, so just like El Nino La Nina are positive and negative phases of in the Pacific, in the Indian Ocean we have the positive and negative Indian Ocean dipole. Okay. So a negative Indian Ocean dipole, which is what we are in currently, okay. is when there's warm ocean waters off the coast of northwest Australia and cooler ocean temperatures off Africa. And that brings more rain across the country? 
Yes, generally when huh. the warm waters near Australia, that means more more rain for Australia. Right, because the because the clouds will form with the warmer water and carry more water and then drop it on the land. Yeah, pretty much. So warm ocean temperatures mean there's more moisture in the atmosphere. So when the weather systems come along, there's just more rain that can be squeezed out. This is so cool. And that thing, the Indian Ocean Dipole, as Dr Beach just pointed out, it's kind of conceptually the same as the Pacific one, but but that we know as Enso or La Nina and El Nino. Yeah, that's correct. So they, they even talk to each other. So El Nino... No, they do not. And Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so because to the north of Australia we have ocean, there's no sort of continent blocking the Indian and Pacific. They can talk to each other and they often... Um, Occur in concert, so... No way! That's it. <laughs> and do we know what drives that? Um, a lot of just ocean currents passing through Indonesia. Wow. How extremely cool. Okay, so the which in the Pacific term is the positive and the negative? Like, is it La Nina or El Nino that is the positive or the negative? Well, it depends on which measurement tool oh, you're okay. using. Okay. So... When there's cool ocean temperatures off South America, that's La Nina. Yep. When there's warm ocean temperatures off South America, that's El Nino. Right. And funnily enough, this, the concept of El Nino was actually named by Peruvian fishermen in the 1600s. They noticed these warm ocean currents, which was affecting fisheries because you get fewer fish when there's warmer ocean. Yes, because they had, you haven't got the upwelling and so therefore you don't get the fish and there's not the food for the fish, so they have less fish. Exactly. So the cold upwelling brings lots of nutrients from yeah. down below. So when there's warm ocean, you don't get that. And so they noticed this and it tended to occur around Christmas time, so they would call... The it was originally boy. called El Nino de Navidad, which right. is Spanish for... The, the little Christmas, boy Christmas. Little boy. Yeah, exactly. Wow. At those temperatures, so that, that off South America, if we have a warm surface temperature... Then it's El Nino for us. That's correct, isn't it, Kim? Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Those warm yeah. surface temperatures are they driven by the fact that there is no upwelling? So when you have cold surface temperatures, are they cold because there is an upwelling of this water coming from Antarctic, this Antarctic bottom water heading north, and then coming up? Yeah. So it sort of comes back to the atmosphere. So the ocean atmosphere. I was going to say, doesn't it all come back to the currents? Then <sighs> they no. all talk to. It's a bit of a chicken and an egg, really. They all talk to each other, <laughs> affect each other. So. Across the equator and over the Pacific, we have these strong easterly winds that just constantly flow across the equator. And during a La Nina, these winds are enhanced. And what that means is that... That's where we get more easterlies. Yeah, you get more easterlies, and that's why we get a lot more moist air being pushed on the east coast of Australia and widespread flooding, typically during La Nina. But also, the water, it pushes, literally pushes the ocean away from South America. And, of course, you can't just have a gap there, the water needs to come up from somewhere yeah. to replace yeah, it. Yeah, right. So it comes up from below and that's why you have these colder ocean temperatures. That's near... why you have the upwelling. Yeah, Because you've got that, you the, the cold bottom water coming up to replace it. Right. I just, I'm that is just so fascinating. And yeah. all of this is resulting in flooding in Nuchuka. Yeah. You know, kind of in a, in a weather sense, these climate features then create these different rain patterns, which means that we end up with more rainfall in a La Nina and a Positive Indian Ocean? No, negative Indian Ocean. Ne- negative. Correct. Negative Indian Ocean dipole. There's one more ocean we haven't even touched yet. Tell me about Sam. What's going on with the Southern Ocean? Yeah, so our friend down south, Sam, or the Southern Annular Mode is what it's called. Yeah. Sam's a lot easier. It's technically not an ocean driver, it's an atmospheric driver. Oh, okay. So you might have heard of the roaring 40s, yep. the winds that 
race around. And around. the 40s to do with, is to do with the latitude. It's, it's like the 40 latitude is and really, really heavy go, winds. Yeah, from the, the westerlies, aren't they? So yes. they come from the west. Yeah, and they yeah. run around the Antarctic. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's correct. So they shift north and south. And oh! When they shift closer to Australia, we call that a positive SAM, and when they shift towards Antarctica, we call that a negative SAM. And so that can have a number of different effects. So, for example, for Victoria, when it's a negative SAM, it means that cold fronts, which bring a lot of our rainfall, will shift closer to Antarctica and therefore miss landing okay. on us. And so we get less rainfall... Sorry, I said it back to front. We get less rainfall in a positive SAM in Victoria. Yeah, yeah. And then what can happen, however, is that because in a positive SAM these winds are close to Antarctica, it can draw tropical moisture further south. Oh. So places like the East Coast and New South Wales actually get more rainfall during a positive SAM. And so that's why this spring was so wet and the Bureau knew well ahead of time that spring was going to be wet because we had... The Pacific Ocean pointing to a La Nina. So negative Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Negative IOD in the Indian Ocean and a positive SAM and just three three things all pointing to wet over eastern Australia. Wow, how fascinating. We now have to ask the question, of course. Yeah. Do you know what's going to happen next year? (laughs) Yeah, are we going to get a fourth fourth La Nina? Four La Ninas would be unprecedented, and I know it's a word that gets thrown around. Yeah, I was going to say, really, uh, you know, like uh, you mean unprecedented, like in yeah. the way we used to use it before COVID, or yeah, actual, right. like really bit. unprecedented. The actual or... dictionary definition yeah, right. of okay. unprecedented. We've never seen it. We've never seen it. Not in our observed records. It may have happened before we could measure it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Scientists would probably lose their heads if it did happen we'd be because it would be so completely out of whack we'd have to do a lot of research that's it oh my goodness now the so is it normal to have a la nina a negative dipole and a positive sam all at the same time that one's not unprecedented okay um it happens it's it doesn't happen all the time right um how it's cool. very unlucky for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Now tell me, I, we're just going to finish off with the real simple, easy question, um, you know, which we'll never be able to get, get through. But is this getting worse with climate change? <laughs> do we even know that? Like, I mean, I know these patterns have been happening for millennia, but do we even know? Can you see signals of whether it's getting worse or not? So I'll start with Sam because that's the easiest answer. There is this general shift in a, towards a positive Sam. So that means that the wintertime storm, tra- storm tracks or the fronts and low-pressure systems and that uh, the Roaring Forties tends to be shifting south right. towards Antarctica. And that's a climate signal? That's a climate signal, huh. yeah. Um, to do with what's happening over Antarctica and the ozone hole. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, Indian Ocean and uh, Pacific Ocean, I can't give a nice answer. I have to give the technical scientific answer that we don't know yet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and, and it's better when we don't know. And it's, I mean, it, it would make sense that there will be a shift, you know, but, but until you have the data, it's too hard to make that call. Yeah. So some people hypothesise that it could swing to more extremes. So La Niña's yeah. will be more extreme and El Niño's will be more extreme. But really the climate models just aren't capturing the patterns well enough yet for us to trust them. So we still got to work on improving our models. And in a way, that's, uh, that's unsurprising because we haven't seen these things before, so we don't have the data to project from for the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've only had ocean observations in that area for a few decades, sort of mm. the last century. So we just don't have enough data yet to really wow. calibrate. Wow, how super fascinating. 
Sure is, and really wonderful to get a, a, like a primer on all this again. I mean, yeah, to, to, to remind us of and, the difference I mean, between those and how those three oceans are. I, I just kind of feel like, in short, our day is entirely ruled by what happens in the ocean. Like, literally, our climate is and our weather is. And we, you know, we do, I know we've been thinking, we've been saying that for how long we've been on air on Triple R. But you know, say, like, no wonder there's a radio show that I it. <laughs> it's kind of both reassuring and kind of scary to imagine that when we muck around with these systems, we can, we can bugger them up a bit and it can change everything. But it's also extraordinarily um, inspiring to understand the scale at which these things are occurring and they're affecting our day. Absolutely. And I guess the benefit is that because we understand it, it helps us make these long-term yeah, yeah. forecasts. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's been wonderful having you live in the studio to have a chat about all that. Um, Dr Kim Reid from the Centre of Excellence for the Climate Extremes at Monash University. You're on Radio Marinara. We're going to play a couple of quick messages and then we're going to be back and we're going to be talking about urchins. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, yeah, Dr. Boxall, um, I was reading um, or having a look at um, the, the media during the week. Um, article in the ABC about the sea urchin problem. Yeah. Thought, yeah, I know a bit about the sea urchin problem, but what we should do to talk about this sea urchin problem properly on Radio Marinara, which is what we like to do on the show, which is about all things wet and salty, is to get an expert on the line. So love an expert. I love an expert. So um, who we have to talk about the sea urchin problem, which we shall sort of unpack, um, is Dr Paul Carnell. How are you going, Paul? Good. Thanks, uh, Dr Beach and Anthony. Thanks for having me on the show this morning. Uh, it's our complete pleasure and thank you for joining us from um, Deakin University where you work. I imagine you're not there at the bench at the moment or under the water. You're, you're... Uh, he's under the water, Dr under... Beach. He'll be under the water. Oh, I... I tell you what, I do wish I was out on the boat right now. It's oh. a beautiful. Uh, off, I'm just off uh, Clifton Springs, and it's a beautiful morning out here. Lovely. Um, it, yeah, the sea urchin problem. This article was um, alluding to the fact that we may have to invest in a sea urchin industry that is harvest sea urchin row um, for people to eat. Um, delicacy to a lot of people. Many people mm. enjoy eating it um, because there's a bit of a plague of sea urchins. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, definitely. And I think on this show before, we've often talked about the Port Phillip Bay sea urchin issue, um, which is a completely different species and, and situation altogether. And we probably actually haven't talked about what's happening in eastern Victoria um, and particularly also affecting uh, down in Tasmania as well. And that's where we have a native sea urchin species that uh, that lived up in New South Wales and um, still lives there. But over time, and we've, um, we've actually seen with climate change, with warming waters and increasing in the East Australian current, uh, that's, that's your little uh, link there and from your comment earlier, um, we're actually seeing um, the sea urchins moving down from New South Wales. So they're doing what the rest of the Australian population is thinking about with a warming climate and they're moving, uh, they're moving down south. So these are the long-spined sea urchins which are native to New South Wales. Yeah, that's right. And so we have historical records showing that they didn't used to occur down in Tasmania and definitely not to the numbers and the degree that uh, that they're seeing down there now. And so, Paul, harking back to your, your comment then earlier in the show, we were talking about why, how they're getting there. And is it the East Australian current that's extended further south that's kind of dragging the larvae down there and then they're establishing? Is that what, is that what we think's happened? Yeah, so it's definitely a combination of two things. So, um, yeah, so, so that's 
strengthening of the East Australian current. Um, so it's pushing um, those warmer waters down in particular years. You know, it's stronger in some years and some summers compared to others. Um, but then also a critical thing is the actual temperature of the water in winter. Um, and so now the, the long spine sea urchin, they reproduce in, in winter, um, but their larvae, um, the, the little tiny larvae that they release, um, don't really develop well when the water's below 12 degrees in winter. And so what, what they've seen is as the water temperature's been rising down in Tasmania, but also off uh, eastern Victoria, those larvae can actually now survive when the water's above 12 degrees in winter. They are, they, they, these guys are native to New South Wales where there are kelp, so they've been presumably mm. eating kelp up there, but there's a lot of kelp, um, big brown seaweeds, Victoria, Tasmania, um, which are not used to having these sea urchins around, so the sea urchins are munching them. Is, is that kind of the, the nub of the problem as I understand it? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, sea urchins are a herbivore and, yes, they love to eat seaweed but also including our big brown kelp. Um, and so in, um, in uh, eastern Victoria, we have uh, some amazing kelp species, but in Tasmania, they have the giant kelp forest, um, which we used to have a bit more of in Victoria, and there's another whole other thing to chat about yeah. that. But, um, and so it's really impacting the various kelp species, but we're also seeing a really big loss in, in the giant kelp down in Tasmania as well. So by giant kelp, is that is like the, the, the big bull kelp, which is a Davilia, I know it's name, but the, real, the, the mm. one that's... You, find out in the Southern Ocean a lot? Yeah, so we're talking about a, a, a macrocystis. So this is oh, the one that really right. does okay, yeah. form forests of the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, they're tens of metres tall. You know, Charles Darwin talked about them when he was, you know, he famously sailed around all the oceans of the world and he was really astounded by the biodiversity and all the fish and everything that you see in these giant kelp forests. So, yeah, they really are amazing places that, um, yeah, have been particularly impacted with warming waters and, and also sea urchins. And, and is this, we hear about urchin barrens, is, mm. is, these are linked? Yeah, that's right. So um, we use the term urchin barren, so it's kind of the opposite end of when you have, say, a giant kelp forest, so you've got lots of kelp, but when the sea urchins eat all of those trees, the kelp, um, we then end up with what pretty much just looks like bare rock or a barren. And so that's where we get that name. So when we've seen a shift from that from that kelp forest to basically a bare rock type scenario. So it's a really visible change that um, is quite easy for people to see. Um, and that does affect all of the other marine species that would otherwise be living there. And this is such a complex problem too, isn't it, Paul? Because we're, we're not talking about a cane toad that's been dropped in, you know, an alien species dropped in. We're talking about, mm. you know, it's a native species that's kind of finding a new niche just down the road. It's becoming overabundant. It's, you know, like... It's a bit like noisy miners yeah, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> The birds. It's kind of, what do we, how do we navigate that, you know, as scientists, how do you navigate that challenge where, you, you know, you know, do you treat them like a feral pest or do you, do you, do you look at them differently? Yeah, and I guess that's the real point of, um, of this uh, Senate inquiry that's happening at the moment is um, how should we be treating them in these places like Eastern Victoria and uh, down in Tasmania? Um, there's been a real big issue, not just for the kelp, but, well, well because there's been an issue for the kelp, there's also been a really big issue for the abalone industry but also the rock lobster industry as well because um, those, those really big commercial fisheries need these kelp forests to survive. So there's actually been a really big push 
from those fisheries to actually be doing something about this issue because it's really impacting uh, those fisheries as well as obviously the broader biodiversity as well. Um, and I think, you know, we will never be able to fully manage the situation. Um, the really difficult thing with these sea urchins is, you know, they exist um, and, and the urchin barrens they create are from kind of about 12 metres deep. So, you know, divers yeah. can kind of get down yeah. there, but, you know, down to reef 50, 60 metres deep. And so that's really hard to get people in the water um, to actually go and uh, do something about the urchins at those kinds of depths. So I think it's, you know, we're ne- um, I don't think we have to worry about over-managing the situation, and it may be that we choose particular areas or places that are important for biodiversity or maybe for fisheries that we might focus on to try and maybe keep as, uh, yeah, you know, whether that's in the marine parks that are already established or, or other locations like that, so... And thank you, Paul, for, for, for mentioning something I neglected to mention in the introduction was that um, there is indeed a Senate inquiry into this. This is getting so mm. much of a problem at the moment that we're losing these kelp forests and, the, and that habitat for, for fish, it's a nursery for fish, all sorts of biodiversity. You know, we're essentially getting clear felling by the urchins that there is, um, mm. in fact, a Senate inquiry. I look forward to the day. It's great that the, the Senate is interested in this. I look forward to the day when when Senate Senate's um, inquire into things, not because it's buggered. <laughs> like you know, the, it's great to see marine things in the Senate inquiry kind of circuit, um, but it's only because it's become, as you point out, Paul, a challenge for biodiversity, a challenge for fisheries, a challenge for that we're there. You know, I'm sorry that I'm just I'll, I'll just set that aside. Um, I look forward to the proactive Senate inquiries about how we manage these challenges before they become a massive issue. You mentioned earlier, Dr. Beach, about that kind of. Um, creating new industries with these things and eating the row and I've eaten some of this that row and it's sensational stuff is is that where you go with this Paul is that what you do yeah so definitely that's right so it could be a big cost to pay people to go out and and try and uh cull sea urchins or something like that but yes if we can really incentivize the industry and get sea urchins onto the plate of more Australians um <laughs> then yeah that could be definitely one way to help uh, uh eat the issue um the issue. Little... Issue. yeah 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 <laughs> is that our way it's our way of responding as humans that's all right let's just eat the problem away <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> Paul it's been um, really Sorry, go on, but we've got to wrap it up very oh, soon. Also this, um, we've talked a fair bit about Tasmania. I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to Parks Victoria that have been doing great work to help uh, try and uh, uh, solve this issue or, or, or work on this out in our Beware Reef Marine Sanctuary in Nice and Victoria. They've been yeah, doing great work with all the volunteers out that way as well. Um, and also to the Abalone Association in Nice and Victoria that have really been working hard on the issue out there as well. Fantastic. Paul Carnell from Deakin University, thank you very much for joining us this morning on Radio Marinara to talk about the sea urchin problem. Um, all the best with um, with your work at Deakin, uh, with Blue Carbon Lab and others, and, um, yeah, love to get you back on the show sometime before too long. Cheers, Paul. Thanks, Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Paul Carnell, sensationally interesting stuff. Hey, I have just realised with the music in the background, I've just realised I have been missing 
um, going through all the texts. We've got some wonderful texts. Pilot Jim said he's getting, pay, pay, uh, you know, someone out in a pilot. Um, wonderful couple of really interesting comments from listeners around the water quality with all the floods. Mm -hmm. um, even though it's a beautiful day, um, there are beach alerts out. Don't go EPA. in the water. Yeah. I meant to mention that today. Do not. It's a lovely day, but don't get in the water. So, the yeah, so it's a real, so thank you very much both Barb and Ken and others for sending us in that, um, those notes. Um, thank you very much to our guests and uh, we will see you next week. Uh, just quickly next week, uh, Dr Tim O'Hara from Event Museums Victoria is going to be in with Bron and me talking about some wonderful discoveries. Brilliant. See ya. Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.